to The Fringe in Review, Season 2, Episode 6, and we're on The Verge. Yeah, The Verge, literally, I'm sitting here at Pavilion Gardens Cafe in my home city of Brighton, and literally, we're on the grass verge, and uh, I'm looking across to the Royal Pavilion uh, in the post-Brighton Fringe months, but the pre-Edinburgh, Camden, and other Fringe months too, and so it's good to be sharing the day before it all begins again in Edinburgh as they... I'm going to use the word boast over a thousand shows and rising as this new model allows people to register right up to the wire and even during the fringe itself. Emerging from lockdown as the expression now has entered our vocabulary and whether lockdown comes back or not there is a fringe happening at the world's largest arts festival uh, following on the on the heels in some ways of Adelaide fringe that showed it was possible with social distancing when things were much tougher and I'm going to be talking to a couple of fringe theatre makers and I love talking about theatre and in this episode uh, there's a kind of theme around storytelling as well as some other uh, questions and thoughts around Edinburgh Fringe coming back, Camden Fringe coming back and certainly online continuing as well as, as Fringe Review will be covering both face-to-face -face up at places like Edinburgh but also uh, the, the online stuff and the online stuff is continuing to develop, it's continuing to grow. It's um, it's not just the, well, we can't do live, so we're doing online. There are some theatre companies, performers, theatre makers, showmakers at this fringe as well uh, that are choosing to be online on dedicated platforms. So I hope you enjoy this episode as we we dare, dare to begin again at Edinburgh Fringe and wondering if lessons have been learned from a fringe that was getting monstrously large. I have to say on a personal level I'm worried that the latest news again is how big it's getting um, and the word sustainability comes to mind. So sit back, relax, listen to some people talking about what they love doing in the arts, the Fringe and Review. David Spillman, I could ask you, what are you doing going up to the Edinburgh Fringe during a pandemic year? I could ask you if you're crazy, but I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to ask you uh, from your own unique perspective to tell me about the power of stories. Mm. Uh, stories are great, aren't they? And we're, we're beings. Why is the story much more from story than we do from any other any any other mode, I think you can go you can go far enough back in you know parables of Jesus, Greek myths, um, you know, and and modern films stories have that catch us yeah. um, in a way that in a way that uh, you know not every other not every other mode does. I think story and. Uh, yeah. Make you forget about everything else that's going on even while that story is going on. You just want to see how the story develops. You just want to see what happens next, how it ends. Um, and, and it allows you to suspend so many other things where you dive into this into this kind of ready-made pool, not quite knowing what's there or, or what you'll find when you start. Mm. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned movies, actually, and, you know, I've certainly heard it mentioned that Star Wars was, you know, based on a classic fairy tale structure. Mm. So are there sort of archetypal story structures that are around that you'll find in different parts of the world at different times that have just somehow lasted, endured, something to do with the nature of the way they're crafted? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, Paul. And um, reading, uh, I remember reading once about um, The Edge, you know, the, the guitarist in, in U2, and he said one of the things I would look for is I would look for what they called eternal chords. In other words, there, there was this little bit of guitar music, these few notes they would play and they'd invent it. But once invented, it sounded like it was something that had always been there. So it feels a little bit like that, um, your question. And, and certainly, yeah, I remember... Uh, um, I remember George Lucas was, has been talking about, yeah, the, the tropes, particularly the tropes of the characters, the ancient characters, you know, the, um, you know, that, that kind of naive farm boy who, who turns out to save the universe and or save the world. And, uh, and so, yeah, there are definitely tropes in terms of characters, 
and and in terms of stories there are things that recur again and again so uh for example one of my one of my great loves is is english king lear i'll put as the i think it's the greatest of shakespeare's plays for example and that's that um, you know, that great scene where, where the king is there and he gets the three daughters in to tell him it's good and honest. And she gets banished and the other two are duplicitous and, uh, you know, say what the king wants to hear and he, he rewards things. Go well then. Yeah, you know, eventually over time, hearts are revealed and the Zealous, so you've got that story, and, and, and of course, that's that's based on, on much older stories, for example, the Bohemian folktale, Salt and Gold, the second as much as Diamonds, and the third, I love you as much as Salt, and the king banishes the daughter until Salt is worth more than gold. And then, of course, they run out of Salt, and, and um, you know, everyone's dying, and, and the daughter turns out with her bags of Salt, and everything's good again. It's very ancient stories, and, and like you say, um, both the story and the character, the reversal, the, the person in poverty who's actually rich, the, the person in power who's a fool, and and these tropes that are repeated again and again. Um, so so um, in in my in the children's uh, book that I've been writing, the Anterbury Tales, one of the one of the stories is called Dung and Diamonds, and it's exactly based on that bohemian folktale where um, the, the, the difference is that it's woodlice. And um, and so the, the three daughters, you know, I love you as much as gold, I love you as much as diamonds, and the third one, I love you as much as dung. Well, turns out that woodlice need to eat dung, um, even their own, in order to... Um, it's, it's to do with getting copper back into their bodies as a physical thing. And so well, the younger daughter gets banished. All the constipated. And therefore, because they're not producing any more dung, up tends to the daughter. Day. So it's, it's very much um, a, lot, a lot of great storytelling doesn't have to be but like you said with Star Wars, it's taking this, these timeless characters and these, these eternal stories and doing something new or placing them in a, in a new context or new situation. Now, what I love about that um, and thinking about Edinburgh Fringe and going up with something that maybe is different is, of course, there are the tropes. And of course, there's the hero's journey and the battle between light and darkness and all of that. But the thing about the dung... Uh, it reminded me of a, a very strange fairy tale called The Green Snake and the Beautiful Lily by Goethe, a German writer, where, you know, there's a, a hero on a quest. And again, there's the three kings and there's the three riddles. And the first mm. one is, you know, what's the uh, most beautiful metal? And the correct answer is gold. What's more valuable than gold? And the answer is light. And then we get to what's quicker than light? And it gets the answer right, but it's not what you'd expect. The quicker than light is conversation. Um, and I kind of like those stories too, whether they go into not so readily available archetypes, but I kind of like quirk and I kind of like things that surprise as well. Um, and so maybe that's an invitation from both of us for people to engage in stories where the answer's dung, you know, and not gold. <laughs> and I guess that, br that, that brings me on to the fact that, yeah, you did the Anterbury Tales at Hove Grown in Brighton, and you've got your own kind of spin on it rooted in story but you write your own stuff too. Um, and Edinburgh is looking for different. It is looking for quirk. And, you know, quark, strangers and charm, as a, a rock band once called it. So so let, let's just unpack that. In terms of the way you craft stories, um, how do you step away from, you know, the obvious tropes that are there in a lot of fairy tales? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And um, it makes it makes me think a little bit of, of um, something Neil Gaiman wrote actually where he he said one of the things that that really drove him up the wall was when people tried to write fantasy or science fiction say without having any knowledge of the genre at all because if you don't know your your subject you're always likely to fall back into those tropes and uh, 
and it's it's about being able to take a step further and say okay what is the audience expecting or what kind of ending is expected here or what or really level as a writer they expected to come next and then finding ways of of subverting or surprising the audience so i think the better that you know your material and the background you mean so for example with the antipri tales um my starting point was to was to read chaucer and um I, my degree but to to read the, obviously the original canterbury tales and you know the ideas came piling in the, the differences and you know so so you having a having a source uh the original in shakespeare um, um you know shakespeare's great originality was his use of character and his use of language it wasn't actually the one surprise is he took something like King Lear and he has the daughter end up dead at the end, um, the, the heroine. Um, I hope that's not spoiling it for anyone who <laughs> hasn't, hasn't read or seen. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, but are, are, you, are, are you just a bit naughty, David? Uh, probably slightly. I mean, I mean um, partly it's, it's um, I think maybe my stories go down well with kids because I've got, uh, you know, I, I don't fit well into that kind of adult world <laughs> always. And um, maybe that's an immaturity and maybe that's just a creativity. I feel I have to be sort of creating, creating all the time, coming up with new ideas or, um, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's fun. It's, it's trying to have, it's taking an established story and having a bit of fun with it and saying, how can we look at this differently? So like I said, King Lear with Woodlice is a, is an example of that. Um Oh, and where you know or where you have um that's right so so one of my other stories uh i have this is about uh, a male black and you know there's, there's this sort of strong wind comes one night and and the egg he, the egg gets blown away and gets adopted by by a much smaller spot a spider grows up in a in a colony of money spiders and one day he starts having these dreams and he he gets ready to to go back to from find his family and so it's quite this quite comical idea of this gentle soul who 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 goes back and uh, he he makes someone who's him and of course for for a male black widow that's not necessarily good news but he's he's completely oblivious to that and uh and and when he has a dream one of the dreams ends up that he's uh he's being chased by a giant sock and uh, through through one thing and another, that's actually what happens to him later on. So that's an example, maybe of of having a what 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 seems to be a throwaway joke, and yet later on in the story, that's exactly what happens to this character. These mm. you know these spiders are chasing him, and they pile into this um, in, this this implement to 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 chase him, and it it, it looks like a giant sock. So I think to, to you know for something that you expect to be just a throwaway line and then to build something onto that is is another example of where you can just have a bit of fun with expectations and and maybe of what's you know of of, of what you might you might um, think would be would be happening. A lot of the um, a lot of the storytellers up at the Edinburgh Fringe over the years take great delight in having the wolf eat the pig for being such an unhospitable bastard. I mean, what about what about the happy ending? Is it kind of you know an unalienable right for fairy tales to end merrily? Uh, the the original fairy tales, uh, I think, not many of them ended happily at all. You know, it's much Just, more. Uh, but they've been they've been Disneyfied, haven't they? That's kind of the idea. Yeah, and even even you know there was a fame there was this famous um, version by Charles Lamb um, in was it the eighteen hundreds I think of um, a, a rewriting of King Lear where Cordelia lives. You know, and and Shakespeare really plays with the audience's expectation because a couple of times it looks like she's, you know, the daughter's dead and it's someone else is dead instead. And you think, oh, phew, you know, and then and then she actually is dead at the end of it. They're like, what? The, you know, the, the the audience would have been absolutely shocked. And and so I don't I don't think it has to be. I, I think for I think for children they don't have to have an, a a happy ending. It has to, or, or it could be an ending that could leave a little question as well. But um. 
I don't I don't think also for kids that you know there's a bit of a fashion of having a dark ending for the sake of it being dark and I'm not sure I'd, I'd go there either I think um I think you can have something that is that is fun and subverts the genre and can still end on a on a good note providing you can find a way to do that that is true to the story if you see what I mean so the so the versions of King Lear where Cordelia lives it doesn't match the whole tone of the play you've you know you've got the whole play and then you've got the the ending and they they seem like two separate entities stitched together mm. so it's got it's got to be it's got it's got there's got to be an ending that that makes sense within the framework of the story so far even if even if it's a surprise so when you get um jean cocteau saying i like a film to have a beginning a middle and an end and not necessarily in that order does that work for good old storytelling or do we need to stick to the beginning, middle, and end eventually? Well, you, I suppose it depends what you want to do. I mean, if you, you sometimes you throw a character, you throw someone in the middle and of a story, and you allude to previous stuff, for example, um, mm. and that's enough, and you don't really need to go any further than that. Even, even again, going back to Star Wars, they started with Episode Four, and I don't think they were planning to make one to three at the time. It was, it was simply the point of saying we're telling, you know, we're we're telling something that's in the middle, rather than, rather than starting at the at the very beginning. So I think you can, you can start where you like. Um, those are kids as well. You you want to have a consistency and you want it to make sense. You know, you don't want mm. you don't want kids to just come out feeling that so if you want. And and, and, and you know, I, I think there's still a lot to be to be said for, for traditional stories as well. Um I think if people work so hard to give another version of the story that you forget that there's actually a traditional version somewhere that maybe kids that is it's actually a pretty good story itself as well. And you can still do something interesting with that as well. What was it what's it like, David? You you step out on the stage, and in a lot of cases the lights go up and they're all sitting there with their arms folded. And in a lot of cases, in somewhere like Edinburgh, this isn't a play, this isn't you know the expectation it's stand-up, it's a thing that's less familiar to a lot of people. They might have mm. just gone along to give it a go. And it's storytelling. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's good to That's try. A big and get... sigh there. That was a big sigh. <laughs> um, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm a teacher as well by trade, and I, I, sometimes you know I've got a bunch of, um, you know, I, te I teach more adult students, and you know, a, a bunch of students sat there <laughs> with their arms folded as well. You, you, you know, that's that's a familiar thing. You want you want to try and get a get a reaction, don't you? You want to try and get get people responding in in some way um and hopefully hopefully relaxing relaxing into the event and getting an idea of what what it's about um i mean in 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 the in the case of uh the the a prologue that comes at the beginning and it's actually in verse which the rest of the storytelling isn't um although um I think my strangest entry in the Anterbury Tales is actually a, uh, a Western in limerick form um, and the whole. Um, and actually, if you go back to the original Chaucer, the, 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 the narrator tells a story and his rhyming is so bad that it drives the host crazy. Another one. And, and this is actually what happens in the Anterbury Tales. The, the, um, the ant, who's the host, gets so annoyed with the rhyming that eventually he, uh, he, he interrupts the story and just says, look, you know, your, your rhyming wasn't worth a turd, which is what the original, the original character says. And, you know, give me something else. And that's when the, the narrator instead comes up with, with Dung and Diamonds. Um, Person. And the idea is to set the scene, to give a bit of humour in there, to introduce the characters, so that by the time the first story begins, you know, from a standing start, but that people have got an idea of what kind of stories these might be, and just a little bit about who the characters are. So every every hmm. story is told in the voice of its character. So, for example, the earwig um, seems to be this very bombastic, 
boastful over the top character who, who basically thinks he's Sinbad. And um, so he tells these outlandish, you know, the again, if we go back to tropes, the, the outlandish tall tale, he's got this uh, very tall tale that he that he tells um, about how he seeks fabulous wealth and so on. And, uh, and, and, you know, in, in, in the book, the, 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 you know, the, the, the joke at the end is that he may actually be telling the truth because no one believes him and it just seems completely mm. outlandish. Um, so, you know, the same with the, the wasp and the, grasshopper so the wasp is this quite unpleasant character the grasshopper is is, is a inveterate name dropper and so they rub each other up the wrong way so the wasp tells a story about this pompous grasshopper who comes to a bad end and yeah. the grasshopper obviously favor with a story about a heist with this you know very stupid wasp who essentially falls for a honey trap um, yeah. literally a honey trap with a, you know as a as a break into a, a top security hive so to to establish the voice of the of the storyteller first i think is a is a really useful thing as well and then when when the audience are clearer who's telling the story and perhaps why i think that that helps them to to go along with things a bit more mm. final question so tell me the the emerging story of David Spillman going to the Edinburgh Fringe that's back back in a you know in a very tentative form but growing by the week and it's Edinburgh Fringe 2021 tell me that story um yes yeah, so, so once there was this guy called David and uh you know he was um you are very, very humble. That is true. <laughs> in very poor circumstances, and um, performing. And actually, yeah. In, in terms of, for example, in terms of, I've been thinking about stand up since since my mid twenties. I think I never, and for about ten years or more, didn't do anything about it at all. And so, in in in, in, in reality, I'm. I'm I'm just one of people who's, who seems to take an awful long time to finally doing something they want to do. So the Antipy Tales itself, for example, is um, I, I first had the idea in 20... And, um, and I, you know, originally written as, as a series... To, ...to research and write the stories. And then... Um, yeah, from about 2016. Yes, in Havegrown, I think 2017, 2018, I did the, I did the Anterbury Tales in in Brighton. And so um, Havegrown was in the city of Brighton. That was an arts festival yeah. just for the listeners here in Brighton in the UK, and it was a wonderfully uh, literary and fringy, for all the right reasons, arts festival in Brighton. Mm, yeah, thank you, Paul. Yeah, and uh, and and so. Um, and so there's just been a development there of, of thinking, how can I take it further? And yeah, you know, it's strange because of all the all the all... often because because often within with the kind of job I've had, uh, which schools well, after summer's come by, and I'm like, well, this summer I haven't really got a chance to go up because uh, you know. You've got kids as well. And so it becomes it becomes a challenge to see when I could go. And and this year things have opened up with with work and other opportunities. And um and I thought, okay, finally, you know, I've been thinking about this for five, six, seven years, and finally there's an opportunity to go. And that this year it's worked out that I've been able to, for example, get a registration in and to be able to travel up, even putting things in a very last minute way that normally would just be too late so in a strange way the circumstance inspired to actually make a, an opportunity and which has been yeah. something i've been quite excited about um you know the same is a really big venue actually in in, in edinburgh at the, the counting house uh the ballroom there and normally that's a 300 seater now i wouldn't expect normally to pull in 300 people particularly as a, a as an unknown artist uh but yeah and obviously the actual capacity um with with restrictions is is much lower than that 
but again it's it's things that have come together late in the day that have actually actually made an opportunity out of what's been a, a very difficult situation so when you're there this is kind of the second part um and you decided to go to the world's you know largest arts festival in recovery from covid so trying to yeah. you know reestablish itself how has the covid year you know impacted on you personally and how might that affect how you do your show in edinburgh compared to how you might have done it a couple of years ago mm. That was a serious question I asked is am I going to do this remotely you know which, which obviously there's the opportunity to do that um but I felt I still wanted to go and actually perform as I say it's been a long-standing um dream to be to do that so so that's still that's still preference you know I mean you're aware that numbers are a little bit less people are a bit more wary of taking flyers um for what i've heard as well so it's starting to look at uh, creative ways of getting flyering out or um you know having qr codes that people can scan and and those kinds of things so getting getting publicity out uh is is uh, is, is a challenging and in terms, in terms of audience reaction just aware that people are a little bit more wary not that i normally have people on the um, but people were a little bit more more reticent, I think, to to be involved. For example, at one point, where where to to um so joining with this with this mini song about an earwig, it might take a little bit more work on that front. Yeah. So but it's 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 being aware of that, you know, and even even strange things like. Um, at the moment, the the uh, the requirement in Scotland, for now at least, is that uh, when people order drinks, they they have to be served to their seats. Meaning, I'll, I'll start a show, and and um, you know the the staff will still be bringing drinks in. You know, how do you manage it? You've even got you've even going to have two queues of people coming in on a, on a practical. Yeah. Course. So those who book tickets in advance, um, and then those who turn up on the day as well. So it's, yeah. it, there, there are some, there are definitely some logistical uh, challenges as well. Um, I mean, I've I've won, um, you know, obviously hilarious moments where um, certainly my stand up where where I, I ask if anyone wants an iPad, you know, brand new sealed yeah. iPad, and yeah. I'm not sure I'm not sure if there'll be so many takers this time, so I'm not sure whether to use that or not. Yeah, um, I, I mean, the result of that, of course, is I'm not actually giving out an iPad, but I'm giving out this uh, this white cloth that made of cotton wool um rather than the full you know apple 400 quid item anyway but um but that's the kind of thing i'm toying with whether to to actually go ahead with that or just leave that for now mm -hmm. anyway um you know because people are as i said keen on accepting or being given things a consummate storyteller and clearly an inventive person heading up to the first edinburgh fringe to emerge from Lockdown. David Spillman, thanks for talking to Fringe Review. Thank you. Do you believe in love at first sight? Will has a secret. He's hopelessly in love with the unattainable candy. She's an epiphany, a revelation, and his best friend Billy in drag. Can he ever be with her? And what does loving her really mean? And what we've got here is a comedy about love, heartbreak and a crisis of identity. It got very, very good reviews in London. And of course, it was pre-COVID face to face. But Reboot Theatre Company have created a short version of this for this year's Edinburgh Fringe. And they've adapted it for uh, Zoo TV, which is run by well-known Edinburgh venue, Zoo Venues. So it's been a real pleasure, actually, and very revealing to talk to the writer Tim Fraser and the actor Mike Waller from Reboot about how they had to move on from a face-to-face -face play because of the necessity of COVID, but the opportunity that that created for them to uh, create a different version of it online. And we get the chance to see that at the Edinburgh Fringe. So uh, here they are. And it was a, it was a really uh, revealing conversation, particularly because writers have to let go of things. But what COVID has created is the possibility to create online versions and still have your face-to-face -face versions and have them running alongside each other, at least for you creatively. Thank you.
Fringe is back, and it's back in two forms. It's back boasting over 900 shows as we speak, with the number rising back in the city of Edinburgh with lockdown uh, unlocking. And it's also back as it uh, dipped its toe in the water with online Fringe, which is what other Fringe festivals have done. And we're joined by Mike Waller and Tim Fraser from Reboot Theatre Company. And before I come to you both, just a bit of background. Zoo Venues, which is one of the most established venues at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, also back. It was often a, a place that did different stuff from the mainstream, but also launched its own platform, Zoo uh, TV. Um, and that's showcasing all kinds of uh, theatre, dance, performance um, in the online world too. So let me first go to Mike from Reboot Theatre Company. We're talking about uh, Candy. And so I guess this is a two-part question. Tell us a bit about Candy and also the decision to bring it to the Edinburgh Fringe online. Uh, hi, and, and thanks so much for inviting us to talk with you. Um, so, so Candy is, Candy's been a, a production in various forms over, over several years and has been very close to Reboot Theatre Company's heart. Um, I read it on a train journey back from the Fringe a couple of years ago as part of a call out for some short. Caught my eye based on the content and the piece itself. And we put it on as a 10 minute play at the Bunker Theatre in London. Um, we really thought there was more of a story to tell. We really thought it only had scratched the surface of content. And uh, Will, which is the character I play, really had lots of other stories to, to tell, to explain his journey through the piece. Um, we worked very close with Tim and developed it into a full length play. Um, and that was that was programmed to be at the festival last year, but obviously festival last year didn't happen, and this year's festival didn't happen in 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 the same means. So we thought, well, how can we tell this story? And I've always been quite wary in a way of recorded theatre. I, I don't think it quite captures the same magic of being in a room with an audience and the intensity um, that theatre creates, P particularly Candy. The intimacy of the play and the relationship with Will telling a story to the audience is really quite important. So we thought, how can we do this play justice? How can we reimagine this piece to bring it to the festival? Um, and we thought Zoo TV will be a very, very good platform for this. And Tim has spent a little bit of time reworking the play to retain the beauty and intimacy, um, but portraying it in a cinematic way without an audience. And I think it gives us a, a slight different feel, a, a slight more perhaps isolation that the character Will feels. Um, hmm. I just, just no noticed the, the Wi-Fi just went out just momentarily, but I think we got nearly, I think 99%. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. We've got, I, we've got it. And that's the, the world of the internet. But um, Tim, um, as a writer, so has COVID thwarted you opened up new opportunities or a bit of both? Definitely a bit of both. Um, hello, by the way. Thanks for having me. Can everyone hear me? We've got you. Excellent. Um, so, yeah. Hey, um, definitely a bit of both. I think up until recently, I, it was just thwarted and I just saw it that way. And, um, you know, because I had a lot of projects. Like obviously, Candy was one of them. We we're going to uh, take it to the Fringe uh, in 2020 um wonder why that didn't happen and then you know there were some other kind of short film projects that i had on and some other things that you know uh but now funding is a lot harder to come by that kind of thing so it definitely felt like it kind of threw me for a loop and also just as a writer i've been finding it hard to get inspired and come up with new ideas when like the world's changing every week and you can't really uh you know keep in track of or keep keep track of what's what's been going on and, and you know how the world's changing because it's just changing so rapidly but at the same time you're just stuck you know so I think that I found it kind of hard a hard period to get new ideas um you know and really work that creative muscle just because I found the whole thing so um just bad for my creativity and my mental health I guess but then you know that's it's been a it's been a journey because this thing has been going on for so long now I think that I started to see it from the other way, you know, which is that, you know, if you can't do what you wanted to do and what you were going to do, you've got to kind of accept that and roll with the punches. And I think when we were thinking about how we were going to 
do this you know and we were we were saying should we just wait until the fringe in 2022 uh, and do it two years later than we wanted but then you know we're doing the proper show the one that we performed in london in 2020 at the, at the beginning of 2020 before covid if you can remember those uh, those golden days um and we we kind of discussed it and as as mike said you know he he's not the keenest and i agree with him on on filmed theater that's just kind of you know someone sticking a webcam on a show and you know because there's nothing about it that makes it that much more visually interesting or dynamic or unique uh and it does nothing there that captures the sense of being in a theater which is like you know which is the whole <laughs> the whole point of theatre is that it's there, it's live, it's, you know, you can't get another version of this. So mm. we we knew what we had, what the talent we had on our team, in that Nico, our director, has also directed um, uh, cinema and, you know, short films, uh, and he's very film literate. Um, and I knew because it was based on a short that I could change the story and, and make it shorter and that we could find a way to kind of make the the story revert back to a kind of shorter length and it would still make sense and so you know i essentially suggested that if we did a kind of 15 minute 20 minute version um and then we would have the kind of space and the time to make it look more slick more cinematic to really think about the shots we're using and how they tell will's story um and so it's this kind of uh it's a film theater but it's got these short film techniques so it's part short film part of uh film theater and i think actually kind of captures what we're trying to do with the with the full show and i think that as mike says the character of will um he's he feels very isolated so all of a sudden him like you know he feels isolated emotionally even though outwardly uh he's, he hides it with a lot of kind of jovial stuff and a lot of jokes and him telling these jokes to an empty room really actually just highlights how lonely he is and how isolated he is and even the setting actually really helped us tell the story we wanted to tell so yeah i think that's a long-winded way of answering your question but i think yeah using the limitations to your advantage i think is something that i've i've learned to do as the pandemic's gone on and and you know we've yeah. come out with something like this which i'm just so so happy with so well uh, i want to blow the wind a bit longer uh, because so we've got we've got this cinematized version you know that you'll be happy with you're bringing it to the public but then there is that pre-covid version so as a writer does that sit easy with you that there are two versions now you know how do you deal with having those in front of you when there was just one um, I mean, you, are you going to revive the live one? Um, you know, how are you how are you holding those in your kind of inner space? I actually love it. I, I, I actually love that. I think that I can understand why some writers would be precious about that kind of stuff. But I love the idea of adaptation and adapting to different forms. You know, I'm not I don't see myself as like a playwright. You know, I see myself as a writer like I write. I've been writing some children's books recently. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been I've, I've written a lot of screenplays and Candy itself was this short play, as, as Mike said. So adapting it into a, a full length, there was, you know, that was already a second version. But also one of those short films I was talking about that I was working with is actually uh, that I was working on is actually a version of Candy. So there's a there's also a short film version of Candy that was already in the works. Uh, as well as that, I've edited it for different scratch nights that were like themed. There was one I remember submitting it to like a Christmas themed one. So I edited the play so that it was like that it so that it referenced Christmas. Uh, and some of that made it into the uh, the full length play. It's the bit that references Love Actually, Mike, for uh, he didn't. Yeah. Know. Um, so, you know, that I'm very, very comfortable with there being multiple versions of Candy. And I'm actually just glad that it's taken all these different forms and that, you know, different people have collaborated with me to work on these different versions of candy. And I think that, you know, this is just another kind of string to the candy bow having this version. And I think the second part of your question in terms of, um, you know, do, editing it um, for next year, I think the good news is that I have a whole year to think about that, <laughs> you know, uh, I have a whole year to, to see, but I definitely, I want to give the full length one a reread um, when the kind of dust is settled for this um, for this version, this filmed version, and really give it another, you know, interrogate it more. 
and um, see what I can improve and see if there's anything I need to tweak or, you know, I'm still 50-50 on whether it'd be a good idea to reference the pandemic explicitly uh, in the play because obviously the current version, it does not do that. So, um, you know, yeah, there's definitely lots to think about uh, and mm. lots of time in which I will get to think about it. Yeah. And for and, you, and Mike. On the back of that, so I was going to say, yeah. I, I, I don't know if we can officially announce, but we have a contract for the full-length version for the Fringe next year. So, uh, so, so it will come back. And this is, I guess this is almost a teaser in a way to, to kind of entice people to see the show, see, see the work, see the story, but very much like Rebooted and the audiences at the bunker when it very, very was first produced, who want to know more and want to hear more of that story, that there will be that opportunity next year in the... But for you, Mike, for you, Mike, as the actor, or an yeah. actor as well, that, um, Dorian Gray comes to mind, only normally when an actor performs live, the one thing that they don't get to do, probably for good reasons, is they don't get to watch themselves. But That's now you a, get to watch yourself. It's super interesting you say that because I I was the only person until last Tuesday that had never seen the play um, because I've always performed it. And I've done a few short films and cringe to watch myself because who wants to watch themselves? Because mm -hmm. you could always do that line better or why are you doing that? Um, but it was a really interesting opportunity to see the play and without sounding like that actor type you kind of forget who you were you forgot it was me on the screen and you immersed yourself and actually listened to Will's story it very much captured my attention and drew me in in a very intimate way as I keep saying that there is no audience and actually the audience is completely removed from the the camera it is the people watching it at home and it it felt as though I was drawn in by this Mm. Now, Tim, quite a question, closing question for you, um, and you can answer this obviously in whatever way you like, but I guess it is a provocative question. I, I made a list um, which has been growing called Gifts of COVID, which I don't mean to disrespect the horrendous things that have happened to people, but the more I talk to theatre makers and reflect myself, some good things have come out of being locked down. I mean, it's fired my creativity in different ways. If you could go back and just continue with the live version, or this happens and it makes you rise to the occasion, write the film version. It, it sounds like you may even now edit for a later live version. Would you rather it had just not been that complicated or, or are you sort of glad it has been? That is a very interesting question. I think that partly part of me thinks that it's a dangerous question to think because, you know, I think that on a very just a basic level all of us wish that, that this didn't happen right like it, it was it was horrible it disrupted everything and you know but I, I know exactly what you mean in terms of the gift, gift it's given and one of those gifts is definitely this this film I mean you know would I trade this film for uh, 18 months of normal life as opposed to lockdown uh, maybe but you know I think that it's maybe actually besides the point to think one or the other you know because this is the life that we got and what we got out of it is this film and you know I think it's so beautiful and Mike just did such a good job that um you know I I am happy that we live in a world where this now exists and that's because of the pandemic so yeah mm. and I, I finally play I, I think this version actually reflects the reality of the last 18 months in that it is a very isolated piece um, previous, the versions have always been very, very connected to an audience. But actually, I think everybody has been so removed from the world outside. Um, and I think this almost echoes that, that there is this person on his own in a completely dark theatre who just wants to tell a story. And I think that's what everybody in the arts has really wanted to do themselves for the last 18 months. Yeah. yeah, and I guess continuing on that note, Mike, um, you know, lots to see at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, now live, but also online. What would be your invitation to people to press play and see Candy? Um, I think we're very used to watching online uh, box sets, Netflix, TV, particularly in the last 18 months. And I think we've all become much more accustomed to new ways of watching entertainment and the arts and I think within that we all have a very narrow 
kind of attention span. People very much dip into YouTube and a 15, 20 minute piece is very familiar. And I think that's what we kind of almost replicate that it is a short play. It tells an entire story and you go on a very long journey with Will and his character and the destruction that goes on in his life, but in a 20 minute story. And I think it, uh, I think the beauty of Tim's writing that allows that um, will make you feel as though you've watched that full length piece, but without having to, uh, ha having to. So Tim and Mike from Reboot Theatre Company talking about Candy. Thanks so much for talking to Fringe Review. Thanks Thank you so very much. much. I don't think we actually talked about what the play was about. <laughs> just oh, really... We're not going to do that. People can go and find out about that. Perfect. There you go. Brilliant. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Bye. Paul. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Bye-bye. So we come to the end of season two, episode six of the Fringe in Review. I'm hoping in the background you can hear the birds that are singing. I'm going to just let that happen. I'm hearing some wings flapping too. The main noise you always hear in Brighton, of course, are the seagulls. And um, it's the day before the Edinburgh Fringe begins, after a year of essentially being cancelled last year or being just kind of forced online. And uh, I'm left wondering, I'm left wondering what form that's going to take. Uh, certainly if you visit some of the other fringes, Amsterdam uh, arrived in my inbox too, the Amsterdam Fringe, which has always been a very innovative, different fringe, and it's worth checking out how they coped with COVID and how they're continuing to innovate, particularly around venues, actually, as well as their curated programme. Uh, and Camden Fringe, when I just visited it, looked like it's just back in the physical world. They certainly were not headlining online, um, and their venues are around London, and I'm sure they're uh, delighted to be back as well. Edinburgh Fringe is the one, I, I'm only saying it's the one to watch because of course it's claimed to be the world's largest arts festival. Uh, it's certainly not as big as it was a couple of years ago and there were already debates, really important debates about affordability, about the city being overrun and about the rough deal that the showmakers would be getting uh, unless they were lucky enough to be paid by one of the venues to play. So. What are you doing, is my question. What are you doing, Fringe Festivals? What are you doing, Edinburgh? Are you just waiting to pick up where you left off? I've certainly been uh, on Messenger and WhatsApp and the other social media messaging platforms and been talking to some of my own friends who go each year to the Edinburgh Fringe. And I'm going to be really honest without naming names. They can't not go. They define themselves by it. It's a kind of micro world where you can experience a kind of mock celebrity. Now that sounds cynical because there is a kind of celebrity that goes on there too. But you have your audience and you have your reviewers and you have your get-in and you have your publicity and your PR. And it's possible to go into a kind of fringy Warhammer role play, um, which is not necessarily good for you for the rest of your year. And certainly during COVID, some people picked up that rough, cruel challenge of being in lockdown and started to create new work some of it online some of it uh, also recorded in radio format and you might think it was a compromise for some for others it's opened up new possibilities but some of them just grumped and went into a kind of angry paralysis just waiting for their stage their stage to come back and invite them um, and they're back they've gone up to edinburgh and um, i'm really not naming you if you think i'm talking about you but hopefully you survived in a good way. Um, some people didn't survive COVID, in fact, in large numbers. There are lessons, of course, to be learned from when a pandemic hits a planet. Um, and they're everything from climate change, the way we treat the planet, also the way we treat each other, and the role of the arts as a warning sign, as a place to debrief, as a place to disrupt. So are you just going up to Edinburgh to do your your uh, quirky show again, your comedy, your biography of someone in history, for good reasons, for reasons that just serve yourself. These are not accusations, but they are an invitation to take an opportunity to refresh and to put some purpose into what you're doing beyond just looking in the mirror and needing to smile at what beauty looks back. We've become an ugly place on earth at the moment. And as I sit here in Brighton, uh, following the news and some of the accusations coming from experts that even here in the UK as we're all right Jack as we're getting the cases down 
um, and that we're sending some vaccines abroad but not enough and it means that countries that don't have the ability to vaccinate have got huge cases, the perfect breeding ground for more variants. Has it become uncool to even think or talk about it in public? Are we over with COVID, at least in conversation? Are we just spoiling the party, the inevitable party that has the unalienable right to be a kind of escapism? And that's the Edinburgh fringe, perhaps. I'm wanting not the monstrous model to continue, but I'm wanting, and I know it sounds a cliche to, to some, but I'm wanting some sort of healing resolution this year at the Edinburgh Fringe to think new thoughts and lead the way, lead the way in that word sustainability. So there's a month coming up, there's going to be some exciting work, new work, groundbreaking work here at Fringe Review. We're excited to hear about things like zoo.tv, uh, where physical theatre and dance is coming to the Fringe with, in partnership with venues like Dance Space to bring physical theatre dance to you, whether you can't actually jump on a train or a plane and get to Edinburgh. Um, and all the awkward and difficult conversations about is it just TV, what is the new genre online and how does it sit with the physical world. This is going to play out I think properly this month for Edinburgh and we'll see whether online survives, whether it thrives, but equally we'll see whether just sitting in uh, courtyards uh, spending a lot of money on booze and food and then going into packed stuffy venues is going to be sustainable in a world where we still don't know if there's going to be yet another wave of Covid. I'm not spoiling it by thinking about it. Fringe Review's ready. Uh, reviewers are online and up in Edinburgh ready to go and see work and write about it and bring it to you. But Fringe in Review for me doesn't just mean reviewing shows. It means reviewing Fringe and what that means. And I invite you to do the same. And look forward to uh, your listening at the next, uh, on the next episode of the Fringe in Review. And bye for now. <laughs>